0: This podcast is brought to you by the Islamic Center and NYU. For more information, visit our website at www.icnyu.org. <laughs> Uh, We praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we send peace and blessings upon Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, all of the prophets until the end of time. Welcome back to our series on contemporary issues, alhamdulillah. Next week we're going to talk about gun control, Uh, perhaps a take or an attitude that we find through the inspiration of some of our thinkers and scholars combined with the cadence of our contents context uh, to think about how we can speak to this from a religious perspective. And the reason I think um, this class is important is that if we don't have a language to confront secular modernity, then we will become secular modernists. That's just, that's gonna happen. what we want to do is to challenge ourselves to think also beyond music, media, and mortgages and to think about our religion in a way that inspires us to um, contribute to the societies that we live in in a positive way. And then at the same time to interject our ideas. Many people don't know about Islam because we don't know how to speak about Islam on issues and, and educating ourselves. And then realizing also that there's a, an anemic kind of level of religious education, especially, especially in North America, uh, and some of the failures to scale education in a way that creates, like, public intellectuals. We always talk about scholars. We need also people in the streets. Allah says about the prophets, shuna the Prophets were in the markets. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about the Muslim, the ideal Muslim, We gave this person a light by which they are amongst the people, they are with the people. So alhamdulillah, before we get started, are there any questions? I know you had a question as I was walking in. I was really excited to see that. That's a good sign before you can even get into the, the place. person has a question. I love to see that. As we said... These are also very much a, a process of discovery. Uh, by no means am I trying to tell you how to think or force an opinion. I'm just gonna share with you some opinions. Um, and at the same time, I'm probably gonna be wrong on some things. We need to create those kind of spaces. We can't have difficult conversations if we can't have difficult conversations. And the expectation is that religions like Del Taco or Chick-fil-A or uh, you know, McDonald's or whatever, it's just like, you get it, it's ready to go. These things take time. And 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 sometimes people don't like to put time into things. But you had a very important question. I think you grabbed me as I was walking in. Um, Solomon is referring to the third verse of the fifth chapter of the Quran. Um, where Allah says, This day, uh, I have completed your religion for you and perfected your religion for you, and I'm pleased for you as Islam, Islam for you as your religion." And so his question is, if, if it was completed and perfected, then how do we explain addressing like contemporary issues? And we talked about this actually in the first lesson. I don't know if you were here. And we talked about that in Islamic law, there's like four or five different issues. Number one are those things, which this verse is specifically talking about, which are clearly outlined in the Quran and Sunnah, which are called usul, the, usul, the foundations. Nobody argues about them. Prophet Muhammad is the final Prophet. We don't commit shirk with Allah. We pray five times a day and Hajj. That's Iqmal and itmam of the religion. But then there are other areas where, of course, after the Prophet وسلم, passed away, وسلم, immediately we find the sahaba having to, having to address issues for which there is no text. The best example is the, the Quran you have now in front of you. It's not addressed in the Quran. It's not addressed in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. So here is an issue where they have to use the raw materials provided by the Qur'an and sunnah, whether explicitly or implicitly, to address those kind of issues. And so we have that tradition as well, coming from the campaigns. And that's why the strong opinions that some of the companions made Ijtihad while the Prophet was alive. Sallallahu Alaihi in fact, he asked Abu Bakr and Umar to make an Ijtihad on an issue in Sulta Anfal. Ijtihad means when there's no text. And they both differed on this issue. So he trained them. In fact, he had judges working in Medina for him. Sallallahu alayhi Wasallam. he established a judiciary system. So second are we believe we have the general raw materials to address what are called an nawazil those things which are happening for which there's no explicit text revealed. And that's why Imam al-Shafi'i, he has a great statement in his role as a judge. He says that the commands and the prohibitions in the Qur'an are limited. But the actions of people are unlimited. So there has to be a way to continue to address those things which there is no explicit text. And that's the role of the method largely. Either to understand the meaning of a text, the authenticity of a text, where in the end there is no text. The opposite of that would be, a religion has nothing to say about anything. So we're just quiet. Sukut. And so we limit Islam to the 300 verses, 400 legal verses of the Qur'an, 5,000 legal to 10,000 legal ahadith of the Prophet everything else we have no message. That goes against the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa Taala says, the Prophet is Rahmatallil Alameen. And also Allah says that this message will last until the end of time. Alhamdulillahi One of the major principles that we use uh when there is a a, a a lack of evidence on a specific issue is benefit and harm it's one of the foundations of our law that's why every time you find Amanu, oh you who believe after that either is either a command preventing harm or bringing benefit that's it so the edifice of islamic law is what's called bringing benefit and preventing harm the evidence for this, for example, when they asked the Prophet ﷺ about alcohol, They ask you about gambling and alcohol. Say in them is a great sin. There is an abundant evil associated with them. يسألونك عن قل فيهما إثم كبير ومنافع لناس أكبر من نفعهما. But the sin is greater than the benefit. So here we see Allah says, there's alcohol, there's a great sin, there's a benefit, but the sin is greater than the benefit. So here we see something. Kind of also goes back to your question that the mufti or the person engaged in serving the community and answering questions, the first goal is not of a madhab. That's a disaster. The first goal is mura'at al-masalih wal-mafasid is to look after what is most beneficial for the person that's asking the question in this life and the next. And protecting them from harm. So that verse in Sultan Baqarah is one of the many verses that provides us this important foundation, this ethos, if you will, of Islamic law. That Islamic law is main goal, after of course establishing worship and protecting us from Tawheed, is to bring benefit and prevent harm. And that's why in the Maliki school that I'm trained in, we have what's called al maslaha al-Mursara. When there is no text, the judge or the jurist, the religious sheikh who's trained is going to look, or sheikhah, is going to look at the issue and see, does it align with the general benefits of sharia? That sharia says is beneficial, then it can continue. The ruling stays permissibility. So this is a complicated topic. I have on YouTube, you can find I have about 25 lectures on usul al fiqh. You can take those courses and it will take you through what are these kind of foundations, sort of the question you ask. It's a great question, alhamdulillah. But Imam Shafi'i said mu'addada wa munhasara, that the religious texts are limited wa ibad, and the actions of the people mu'addada wa munhasara, they're not limited, meaning. We're going to keep seeing new things happen throughout history. So he says there has to be a way to tie the heavens to the earth. And so if you go, you see, like even sometimes fatwas will change because the situation changes. Why? What's most beneficial for the people? So in the Maliki school, what I'm trained in, I'm not a fanatic Maliki, it's just what I know it's what I'm trained in. the Maliki school, for example, early on, we said it's not allowed to pray the Quran, pay the Quran teacher. Why? Because the Khalifa was a good person. They, they were not paying Taylor Swift to come or you know, the One Direction to take people away from the direction of the Qibla to play in, pray, play in their mosque. So at that time, the money was spent towards education, towards funding education, towards scaling education, not just religious education, all forms of education. So it didn't make sense to pay the Qur'an teacher, why? She's already being paid. She's already being paid. But then over time, we see that the system becomes corrupted. And one of the failures of classic Islamic finance is that it thought it could survive based on loans. And This is not going to exist now. Nobody's going to loan you enough money to go to college. They'll loan it to you with riba. And that's another discussion on Islamic finance. But we see that Imam al Suki, one of the great late Malikis, he said, now we have to change this fatwa because the system is corrupted. And if nobody pays t- people to teach, what will happen? Nobody will teach. This is called fatwa the fatwa can change based on what's most beneficial, as long as it doesn't contradict the text of Islam. It's very simple. So that's the danger sometimes when you call your local, you know what I'm saying? I only want it to my madhab. You have to be careful. Careful with that because maybe your issue is not found in the madhab. Maybe your issue is something now like T cells that needs a direct answer from the interpretive lenses of the madhab, but what you're not found in the madhab. And this anachronistic fetish amongst us has destroyed us and weakened us. At the same time, we don't want to throw out the tradition in some kind of deconstructive postmodern rant because the tradition is what allows us to rudder our understanding and to guide our understanding. But the majority of the issues that many of us face today, I can say that on Instagram, not are going to be not explicitly found in, for example, the Maliki Madhab. Impossible. And that's why you know we have to appreciate that there's a difference between public education, which is seen as scholarly ignorance. So public literacy is viewed as scholarly ignorance. That's why Abu Ala al muarri he said, He said, when I saw that ignorance had become popular, I learned until everybody called me stupid because I knew when I went viral being called stupid, I knew something. Because people weren't educated. And if we look at the history of some of the great people that we respect, whether Rabi al Adawiyah, you name it, most of them, they died at the hands of an uneducated public. Imam Ibn Rushd, dies in house arrest. Imam Abu Hanifa, he dies in prison according to the strongest opinion. Imam Shafi, some say he was beaten to death in Egypt. You you go through it. The people that you think now are amazing, maybe if they live now, nobody would like them. These people, they challenge our thoughts too much. Al-Nahas, who was one of the greatest scholars of Arabic in history, he moves to Cairo. He sits on the Nile and he begins to read. He developed his own theory for the Arabic language. He's a genius. So he's reading it by the Nile. And a group of people, they saw him and they said, he's casting a spell on the river to hurt our crops. And they killed him. They threw him in the ocean, in the Nile. So most of the people, now that we look back on it, we say, wow, they were so intelligent that they were, mashallah. In their time, they challenged the status quo. Not in some kind of liberal, progressive, freaked out, deconstructive, Western, neoliberal, post-colonial nonsense. No, they were religiously constructive and religiously critical. And that threatened people. Probably most of the scholars you love, Imam al-Tabari, the great scholar of tafsir, how did he die? In house arrest. Even they would not allow his Janazah to be publicly attended. So we have a history of an uneducated masses that hates those who challenge its mind. This is unfortunately one of our histories. And we should come to terms with this. And what's the remedy? To learn, mashallah. And we see this now in America too, vaccines, you know, so many issues, everybody, whether you're pro or, you know, for or against. But most people talking about it, you asked him, do you have any basic, like, have you ever sat in a classroom? Like, have you ever been to, like, one seminar on the vaccines? No. I just feel, you know, last night I was playing Halo 10 and, you know, I had this inspiration. That's a challenge. But most of the great scholars that you probably love now, (laughs) look at research. I I was working on this series, how most great scholars died. It wasn't easy. And this starts with Sayyidina Imam Ali, alayhi salam. People killed him because they felt he wasn't tough enough. So the challenge now in contemporary issues, that's one of the reasons we're doing this class, is to walk you through some of the philosophical aspects of Islamic law, to engage you in conversation, to learn from you and benefit from you as well, so that we can perhaps model you know, some semblance of just conversations. Nobody needs to get upset, man. Just relax, take it easy. My three-year-old told me yesterday, relax, relax. What kind of three-year-old are you? Any other questions from last week? Uh, before we continue uh, on some of these discussions today, not a lot to discuss, but some some points I'm sure we want to take from you. And we have Asma here, who I, who I plan to ask some questions that I prepared as well. And we have a beautiful musical. We're going to do Islam and music also, so Islam and art in the future as well, inshallah. Any other questions, or comments, um, before we jump into it, inshallah? It's great to see everybody, alhamdulillah. hafizakumullah. So, last week we, we began by talking about the approach of Sunni jurists, largely uh, to the issue of Ijhab abortion. And we talked about the different opinions, uh, those who contended to be 120, 40, and then we talked about now contemporary fit Council saying 136 days based on new scientific revelations new understandings that are coming from the medical field that are not considered and i forgot to say this like some kind of fly by night like dr eric berg on youtube or something you know if you drink lemon juice you'll lose 60 pounds and your glycemic index will balance out like this is not this is not the kind of people that we invite to the fit council and I I think I mentioned to you like I met the guy who did the pig heart man I met that dude I was like can I get your autographs like really weird question, but I was like this is like amazing Muslim uncle uh, I believe in the Maryland area Um, so he came to the fit council he's the guy so they ask him all the questions about the pig heart pet of the pig and what that means and how it works so also most fit councils I know a daughter Qasim in Chicago also these People are reaching out to very qualified people, not, you know, strange stuff, uh, for example. Um, and so we talked about how many now are saying 136 days. We talked about the Maliki opinion. The old Maliki opinion was it's completely not allowed, and because the Maliki said that medicine is ذني, right? That that medicine is something at that time that was presumptive. It was a theory, a hypothesis. It had to be proven whereas the death of the child is certain. So they would take certainty They have an axiom for this, that doubt is not removed by certainty. But then later on, you find people like Sheikh Sadiq al-Ghiriani in Libya and others changing their opinion based on their engagement with who? With medical professionals. And in COVID in particular, most of the fed counts were engaged with public health people, public health administrators. Yes, sir. No, everything about killing is after the insolent. Right. So anything in the Quran, Wala taqutulu nafs. it's not a nafs until there's ruh. It's a good question, man. Um so it's not a nafs until there's ruh. Yeah, that's that's the that's the argument there. Great question. Thank you for asking that question. That uh, non-Muslims are held accountable for secondary issues of sharia. I think that's completely irrational. How? How they don't even know, they don't know who Allah is. How are they gonna know secondary issues of sharia? Like, how are they gonna know that? You're gonna tell like your person, your you're patient, oh, by the way, in Islamic law, even though you're not, even though you're an atheist, I thought I should tell you that Abu Hanifa, right? They'd be like, who the heck's Abu Hanifa? If they're a Muslim who knows, that's an issue. If they're a Muslim who doesn't know, I don't think in your job capacity, you can suddenly become on the pulpit, right? And if they're a non-Muslim. And again, that's why I tell people, negotiate these things on, and you struggle, it's a jungle out there. We're not having Harun Rashid, and this is my concern sometimes with religious people. If you want us to do religious things, then build hospitals, right? If you want us to abide by Islamic law, then scale the community. But to expect someone who's like in your position to abide by these things, if, inshallah, if you are able to opt out, opt out. If you can't, then you got to do what you got to do. That's the struggle. And, and again, I like to tell people when they tell people, "Oh, stop. okay, then give her a job. A lot of us, and, and we'll talk about it hopefully today with, with asthma that, you know, let's look at the studies where abortion isn't available even before 120 days. Who does that impact? How does it impact, for example, overall health? How does it impact nutrition? How does it impact uh recivity amongst fathers? How does it impact incarceration? How does it impact abuse amongst women? Like we shouldn't just look at this in a myopic way. We should look at it in a broad way, and then see how can it even be used politically to punish communities of color? And so just to simply look at it as one issue, study after study after study shows. And of course, for us, before 120 days, 136 days, where people don't have access to abortion, crime rates go up, lack of nutrition, overall health care is horrible, and that many of them become incarcerated. We're not going to look at the whole issue or just one issue. And I think sometimes we get caught up in that. But again, feel free to, to chime in. It's a good question. I, I would see about the ability, you know, of course, when you're doing your residency, you're trying to, you're just trying to get through. Maybe you got to get through. And then once you get some power, you have the intention, once I'm in a position of power, then I'll do better. Okay. What are you going to do? Yes, ma'am. Come some. no, Did you say sorry? Oh, you got to pay that. I think we have to negotiate and state our positions. And then also we have to appreciate. I think Asthma can maybe chime in the broader implications of these laws as they impact women of color largely as we said after 136 days will be considered sinful behavior would someone give there's no judicial record of anyone getting a had punishment for committing abortion after 136 days in history of Islamic law so if you're asking if it's equated to murder no not to practice yeah. And I, I i i i know of none there may be but as i know in comparative law we never came across someone receiving the hud punishment and also because many scholars say that there is no analogy to the hud laws there's no ps for the hudud. because that would create a dictatorship now everything i can kill you right if i'm a bad leader i can say everything's ps well you parked wrong and someone hit your car and died now i'm killing you it's like what I... protest protests lead to harm so now i'm going to kill you sound familiar did i gaslight anybody i'm just making sure i, I try my best to be honest if you felt that way let me know someone's like start putting me on blast um and i think that's that's a risk i'll take also in having difficult conversations but i would never try to put anyone on blast or gaslight uh, anyone in that way i may mean, ask hard questions because i want to learn also i want to understand uh as best i can too um, but again, to your question, I think I repeated it also, but let me make it clear. It would be a moral violation, it would be sinful behavior. Um, does that 10 percent outweigh the 90 percent? That's a personal, I think we'll talk about, it's it. a personal decision you have to make. I don't think we can create one policy for the Muslim community. I don't think people would adhere to it. It'd be impossible. We, we don't agree on Eid, man. We don't even agree on Taraweeh. How are we going to agree on this? So We have to recognize that people are going to do what they want to do. And inshallah, Allah will reward them or punish them based on their intention. Allah knows what they're trying to achieve. Uh, that gets into now some of the questions like preeclampsia uh, and other questions. And for in, in general, the scholars say that if there is a threat to the woman's body and her physician, her her physician and her come to a conclusion, that it is a, a threat that could harm her, not just kill her. By the way, Imam Al uh, Haramein has a great quote and he says that if somebody waits for the necessities to kick in before they react, this is a horrible mufti because prevention is better than cure. Uh, so, In that situation, the decision would be between, between if she's, for example, single, her and her primary physician. On the issue of rape, because we know that rape was used against Muslim women and continues to be used against Muslim women, we have two opinions on the jurist, yes and no. decision you make neither are considered sinful and this maybe is the issue also Uh, if it's legitimate by legitimate people not just like the issue had of some guy i met at watch the square part at this miniature coachella but you know someone like who's considered a respectable or respectable and i talked about this last week ideally a group of jurists are coming out and saying for example i know the scholars of 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 syria in particular during the bosnian crisis and rwanda they are the ones who, under the guidance of Sheikh uh, Bulti, who passed away Allah um, Hamel, that this is allowed for someone who's been raped because they recognize that rape is a weapon. And, and they extended this beyond 120 days. Others said no before 136 days. Kind of the same logic that we used. You have two opinions. Both are well-researched. They're public. They're peer-reviewed. You can find them somewhere in Arabic. I think at the Damascus University in particular, in Azhar, I know we studied um, both opinions. And the Azhar was kind of like, it's, it's a choice of the person. Where do we find evidence for a woman making a choice uh, how to use her body? In the 33rd chapter of the Quran, a woman came to the Prophet ﷺ and she offered herself to marry him. She is now using her agency and she is presenting herself to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to marry the Prophet ﷺ. nafsaha نَفْسَهَا nabi عَلَيْهِ الصلاة والسلام. The Prophet ﷺ, he didn't, he didn't marry her, but he didn't tell her, don't do that again. And we have a very important axiom in Islamic law. It's impossible for us to believe that someone would do something haram in front of the Prophet and he would not say anything about it, or Allah would not reveal something. And that's why the Hanafis, I know this is controversial, they say a woman can marry without a wali. I would not advise it just because something's permissible and for young men also. If my son married without me, I would have to remove him from the face of the earth nicely. You know what I mean? Like, I'll be angry. Like, man, what did you just do? You went to Vegas? Right? Right? Just because something's permissible doesn't necessarily mean it's wise. Now, there are certain situations where that may be the better decision. When you run into people in their late 30s, mid 30s, even their late 20s, and everyone they brought, no, 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 for no reason. And then you run into young, or from my vantage point, young men and women who are depressed, alone, sad, suffering from mental health issues, from loneliness. Because parents who don't want to cooperate, we have to educate parents and engage them. here we find an example in the 33rd chapter of the Quran of a woman, uh, using her agency, she gifted herself, actually the meaning, to the Prophet said, I want to marry you, Ya Rasulallah, Sayyidah Khadija. So that's physical uh, utility. Sayyidah Khadija uses her mind. I like this guy, I want to marry him. So she proposed it to the Prophet. In the beginning of Shultun Mujadidah, in particular, we can talk about men also, but this issue is related to women. Allah Allah has listened to this woman who's complaining about her husband. Allah did not censor her for her complaint. Nor did the Prophet وسلم, say to Khalwa bin be quiet, don't talk about this anymore. But there was it was addressed actually the whole chapter. The chapter is called Mujadila, the woman who argued with who? That's why I said it's okay to argue. If people could argue with the Prophet, you can argue who the heck am I? Nobody. I'm just a guy from Oklahoma. And we have to be, be very careful of creating an environment where we can have hard discussions. It's okay. Take it personal. That takes us somewhere. Also, we find over and over with men, right? The use of their body, uh, their minds, their words in the Quran. And unless it violates, the haram, and this is where I think your question is, is is can be kind of toned, right? As long as we are not using those things in violation of the, the sacred law. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ, in the hadith of Sayyidina Imam al-Tirmidhi, he said, أفنا, that a person will be asked how they abused their body. That's why the majority of ulama, they said smoke and shisha is haram. Why? Because the person is abusing his or her body, as an example. That takes us now to the other question. If she's married, and we know the Hanafis, we mentioned it was only the Hanafis, actually Asma, who said that it's the right of the woman to make the decision. But if we look at the Quran, for example, the issue of breastfeeding in an ideal marriage, in an ideal marriage, not an abusive marriage that changes things, but in an ideal marriage, this decision should be a joint decision, if possible. Allah said, they talk about it. When should we stop breastfeeding this child? So now the husband and the wife are both involved in making this decision for this child, for this child. Uh, There's some other issues we can mention, like anything that is a threat to her health and it's considered a threat by reputable, her primary physician, her OBGYN, whoever she's engaged with, then that is her right to end the pregnancy even after 136 days. That's her decision. And there's no sin in this decision. Why? Because of the presence of harm, not death. I think that's about the gamut sort of of these issues. I, I would encourage us also to be careful and not get, and Asma brightly kind of touched on this, but just get asphyxiated, with one issue, but look at the broader implications of how this impacts people. But you you have the decision, 40 days, 136 days, I'm not gonna tell you uh, what to do. I think as healthcare providers, if you can opt out to be safe, of course, because as brother mentioned, we don't wanna be part of potentially challenging behavior, morally compromising behavior, but then at the same time, Let's build Salahuddin Hospital. Let's build Rabi alawiya Hospital, right? If, if we, I learned this in Boston when I used to work at Harvard, and I would go to career day. The synagogues would be at career day with booths, hiring people. I was like, my gosh, <laughs> you know, where are we at? Like, we're not here. And we have the ability to scale. And we have the ability to build. And I think that's you know, we're seeing that in your generations it's a great question so things like down syndrome for example um again you know when i when i did my exam in in law college i was terrified because my first language is not arabic so i was freaking out right and in this legalese in a different language so i went to one of my professors it's like man I'm like i'm scared he's like just always say there's two opinions he's like if you find yourself unable to answer just write fihi rayan and you just say there's two opinions. So in this, there are actually two opinions. Again, those scholars of Syria, meant most of them. Um, scholars in, in uh, Egypt, a lot of them, are the opinion that if the child has Down syndrome, it's a choice. The stronger opinion is that we should keep the child. Because this is, alhamdulillah, from Allah, Allah will put khair, alhamdulillah, and maybe serving this child, I know those tests are pretty rock solid but i have seen two instances i know in history where the child didn't have down syndrome i don't know what happened so i i think because of the sanctity of life we believe that life is sacred and that kind of gets to the moral issue right that life is something which is sacred um that issue the opinion of those scholars god bless them we love them um, even if we don't align with them sometimes politically we respect their academic prowess It's not as strong as the others who say Allah says, don't, don't kill your child out of fear, right? And, and that's where they're using, so I think also the test for Down syndrome is largely happening after 136 days. Yeah, and that's, so that, that was the issue I remember as well, that that test can only be administered, I think 148. Yeah, my wife's watching, I'm in trouble. because She's expecting, I forgot already. But it's after the 136-day period, as I recall. If that changes in the future, then there's that dispensation. So I don't know if I made myself clear. I said we should try to opt out, right? even with non. But at the end of the day, what non-Muslims do. So it's a very important point, even on the issue of voting. I could sell you a phone. You could use this phone for good. You could use this phone for bad. I. In Islamic law I am not responsible for how you use this phone we'll talk about this next week when we talk about gun gun stuff the only the only time it's not allowed for me to sell something to somebody is when I'm hundred percent sure hundred percent sure or strongly sure that they're going to use it for something wrong so my issue is you said 90% of the people Right. These are issues where there's leeway. But I should try to opt out if I have a non-Muslim patient. I should try to opt out if I can. Okay. So if it's like a patient can... Because I'm responsible. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm making a decision for myself, right? To to aid in abetting this moral issue. Okay. If possible. No, either. Yeah, either. Thanks for asking me either. If possible. If not so possible. You if you can, if you can, do what you gotta do. It's a hustle. And and it's not necessarily an easy situation. Good question. This this musical accompaniment is like so just like, just like is someone going to serve like ribeye and baked potatoes and greens? Like, what's going on? What's next? And it's like really strange. Neo soul. Getting D'Angelo vibes. Um, any other questions or comments? As we segue now into the next scene, are there any, any other questions or comments, inshallah? No, I think, I think it's a great question. Someone told me this 30 years ago that if Muslims in America want to have a greater impact, they need to do it through institution building. I'm a believer in that. And I've seen that, for example, in Southern LA, you have the Ummah Clinic, right? Latinos in South LA love Muslims. They're not even Muslim because they have a, they've had a clinic there since the early night, in my era, MSA in my era, um, built a free, low-income healthcare facility in one of the most abandoned parts of the city and partnered with UCLA uh, and their healthcare system to provide medication, access to physicians, pediatricians, you name it, has impacted that neighborhood. People like Muslims, people will defend Muslims. Uh, in Chicago, now with the Eman, uh, in Inglewood, you have now also um, not only uh, a clinic, but you have taking on, for example, um, lack of, act. so they, they negotiate with Whole Foods that there would be a Whole Foods in the hood. People would have access to healthy food. Food deserts are being taken on by Muslims. So I think if we get pigeonholed into simply becoming a community of politics and not a community of service, we fail. Because we are being so misrepresented as it is. How do you undermine that representation? It is By countering it, by being prophetic. And as for the money, I met a Muslim two days ago who just sold his country con- company for 500 what is it, for $20 billion. Mm-hmm. We have money. Go to the Bay Area, I used to live in the Bay Area. Muslims in the Bay Area have money. We need vision. Yeah, we do. Actually the Pew study shows that we're one of the richest religious communities in America. My daughter was in NICU and the nurse that was looking after my daughter here, she was an Orthodox Jew and she was telling my wife like, I know know y'all's community, y'all like legal like us, you got kosher, I mean, haram, you know, don't worry about your daughter. Right? I was like, this is crazy. But then we felt like covered, like, yeah, she gets it. And she's like, I, you know, I understand this adjudication of religion. So there are actually studies online. And I believe it was a few study like 10 years ago, if I recall, I showed per per capita per number, Muslims are very rich. They have a lot of money. And I'll, I'll show you here, in, and I, I can speak from example, just as someone who's on the front lines of fundraising in the Muslim community, we have money, I've seen it. Here, you know, a bunch of students built woman's shelter i mean like students and 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 we had some hedge fund people that were like right now they came to us and said we're willing to buy a building to open up another center for icny and like, who can buy a building in new york city so i think again we, we even if we say compared to others that's fine but do we have the money to do things that's the more important question we do have the money to do things um in the last few Mubarak, I talked to her, was with, with the Bernie campaign. Muslims supported strategically candidates across this country, whether it was in Cleveland, whether it was in North Carolina, whether it was in Atlanta, you name it, they put money behind candidates. So we have money. We're not going to have the money that the Catholics and the Lutherans have because of numbers. Right? And, and if you look at the Catholic community, they have entry points into very strategic donations. I remember during 9-11, a large number of Muslims were held by the government, had no lawyers, and we were not able at that time to provide lawyers for them. The Catholic charities provided lawyers to Muslims pro bono. So I think it's not only money, it's organizing and structuring and layering. Um, And I think our physicians actually have done this in many communities on their own in great ways. I know in Boston, we had a mental health clinic. We had a, a health clinic. Here, I know in a number of areas, there's clinics. So it's not necessarily even just cash, talent. We have talent. I mean, I think we have to play chess, not checkers. And, you know, I get it. Some people don't want to do that, it's fine. Um, I think just my own experience as embracing Islam and having to navigate an entire non-Muslim family and being financially independent very early on, my, my family is just like out, right? So I had to hustle and I had to make moves. And I, I agree, um, people could disagree. I don't I don't take it as a disrespect. I don't, I'm not like that, man, alhamdulillah, like whatever. But I, I do think, at least with the convert community, we are headed towards playing chess, not checkers. And we're losing our kids because of the racism in the community, our kids can't get married. Um, our kids don't have entry points into the Muslim community, many of us, regardless of our race, because we're we're, I'm the new Muslim guy, no matter how long I live, which is great, alhamdulillah, 30 years. But I think for those of us who accepted Islam, for example, a large number of new Muslims accept the opinion of Abu Hanifa that there is no riba in al-Harb. Why do they take that opinion? Because ain't nobody helping them out. They get kicked out of their houses. They can't go to college. They can't buy a house. So, you know, you find within convert communities, there is a need to scale. And we don't want to create hyper divisions or anything, but it just got to be what it's got to be. And 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 so I may look at this from a very different, obviously, a perspective. I'm a man. I'm white. Embraced Islam. I'm looking at it from ways that you don't see. So you sharing with me critically also helps me, right? Educates me. You're, you're, I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, it made me think. When you were asking about more, I was like, okay, yeah, I see that now. And so I appreciate that. But we may also sometimes not necessarily align because of our micro communities that we that we deal with as well. And the one I knew I was actually interviewed for was in 2008, 2009. Yeah. So go ahead, sorry. yeah, uh, around 40% of Jews make a care more. Uh, and I would say Muslim numbers and Jewish numbers are roughly the same in terms of total population, right? Roughly one percent, roughly three million it's interesting and again i think also it's not just about money it's about our talent look at the graduates university graduates amongst muslims online who have talent yeah. but i don't need to compare, necessarily compare myself to jewish right i just need to do what i need to do so i, I appreciate that i'm going to push back and say well if i only make my strategy based on what other communities are doing and that's not what you're saying i'm being tensioned that's also, but i could care less I feel, I feel sometimes we get too caught up in that i've, I've seen people with very little resources, um, established schools. We did in Oklahoma, a a, a great private school. We had nothing, but we had dedicated people. And and you know, a a good testimony to this is the number of Muslim foundations in DC. Compared to the Catholic foundations, and and, and look about what's the average cost to start a respectable foundation in DC? I think it's six, correct me again, or $12 million. So, So they have like, look at the Supreme Court, right? They obviously have made moves. So i think i appreciate that also i don't like to inflate irrational expectations but i think also there needs to be like so i got contacted by i think it's isna to go to their national uh, conference and then icna i think was last week i wasn't able to go to icna i I needed to help my wife but at these conferences i think one of the things that needs to happen is like let's lay out a 20-year strategy And, and don't bring so, hey, web to give a keynote speak. Like, you, you speak all the time, right? Don't you hear that? Let's bring in, you know, I, I could be, you know, I don't want to be, but Imam Khalid could be at the table. Uh, Yasmina Mugahed could be at the table. But also bring people who are thinkers involved in finance, strategic uh, issues, you name it, that come to the table and say, these are these are the things that we need to have in place in the next 20 years. And that allows us to be more honest, right? And then, or maybe we say this year, we'll fund a study. You go and study. What are the needs of the Muslim community locally in New York City? And then a year later, we meet again and say, okay, now where is that money needed? And then we start to be honest about what we can do. We look at like a startup. How do we scale? That that would be sort of an idea. Yeah, then conditionally, right? I think that's where that. Navigation has to happen. So let's 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 step back. This has been like uh, I really have uh, benefited, and I also changed my perspective, man. So um, I'm I'm also happy to be here. How is everybody feeling about these kind of sessions, these kind of discussions? Um, I hope you feel comfortable. Like you know, if you can chime in, uh, even differ. I think it's important we model differing sometimes. Um, Just because we don't, you know, people always and again, like I make fun of the sorry thing, but I I feel that there was a great, it's a great travesty that's done if people every time they have to ask questions. I have to say sorry. Well, I have to say sorry. It's great, you ask a question, Alhamdulillah. So sorry that you have to say sorry. Um, any any thoughts uh, or comments on the session, anything we can do to improve it. Uh, by no means am I trying to gaslight anybody. I swear to god, I didn't bring I don't drive a car. Ethically, I'm, I'm, I'm a hippie. I walk, I don't drive, um, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, some religious, um, my own my own commitment to uh, environmental justice. It, even if we don't agree with one another, like we're still brothers and sisters. One time Imam Shafi got in a big argument with Al-Muzani. And Al-Muzani became so angry, he got up and he ran away. He became angry. And uh, Shafi ran after him and said, hey, hey, don't forget, we're brothers. they he turned he said, I'm sorry. It's has got so heated, which is normal, right? Uh, Islam uh, does not expect us to be drones, perfect people. Tomorrow night, you're gonna see me at this time, I'm, I'm gonna be, you know, very emotional, right? It's the finals, the Celtics are gonna dominate, hopefully inshallah, but I'm not gonna be, like I'm here. And I also don't want you to feel uh, like I'm here as a judge or to tell you how to think or what to do. I'm more here to facilitate, here's some things from our tradition that are seen as authoritative and then oftentimes there's a choice. In the world. If you would like to listen to more, please donate to www.icnyu.org donate. For more of our virtual programs, go to www.icnyu.org classes. If you have any questions, email us at info at icnyu.org.